Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Access to passion, purpose, and flow really sort of matters, right? As part of what gets you into this door, in a sense. Um, and then sustaining it over time really matters. And I was, as an expert skier, my only entrance into flow was big mountain riding, more challenge, more risk, more danger. With park skiing, even though it seems ridiculous, what I was trying to do was I was trying to learn how to creatively interpret terrain features. Some of those terrain features were in the terrain park, but really I wanted to be able to use the entire mountain like a slope style course, if that makes sense to you. And the reason is this. Risk is a flow trigger, so it was novelty, and that's what I was getting as an expert skier. What I wanted was creativity. So creativity, when you link ideas together in a new way, you get pattern recognition, that works as a flow trigger. And it's a much safer flow trigger than risk. And if by learning how to park ski, I would learn a million different ways to creatively interpret the mountain and get into flow. So I was learning to move my body in new ways and use the terrain in new ways at all levels of terrain. And what I was doing was actually giving myself a million more entrances into flow over time than I actually had before as a skier. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Stephen, welcome back to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. It is so good to be with you. Yeah, it is my pleasure. You're one of those rare guests. And I, I, think, I think at this point, you might be uh, on par with Danielle Laporte for being the most frequently appeared guest on Unmistakable Creative. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, well, and there's a, a good reason for that. Uh, you know, you have had a profound impact on my own thinking, my own way of working. Uh, I think you know, millions of people probably could say the same thing about your work uh, on flow research. Uh, and you have a new book out, uh, Nar Country, which we will get into. And I was thinking about how we could start this conversation, uh, given that I've talked to you so many times that I was thinking back, like, what questions have I not asked you? But um, given the subject matter of this book, I thought this would be an interesting place to start. What was your very first action sport and how did that end up influencing everything you ended up doing going forward? Oh, my God, it was 
who escaped well. So the way we rode bikes, I grew up in, in Ohio. Um, and, uh, we rode like we were, we were trying to do what like BMX jumps and things like that, but on like seven 1970s hard trails, um, or banana seats. Um, so I think that was probably my first attempt at an action sport. I got my first skateboard. I want to say when I was 11 or 12, it was literally some of the very first skateboards they made. They were like simple polyurethane depth traps. Um, I broke, uh, I, I, I got my first broken bone from, uh, from that skateboard. But yeah. I think skiing was also like right around, I learned to ski right around then. And from the, the really, I guess, I guess the answer, here's the answer you're looking for. The first time I went skiing, uh, the mogul skiing was, you know, expert skiing at the time, right? Especially in Ohio, uh, where we didn't really have much else. And I saw a guy show up at the ski area. They were having a ski contest and it was like a standard, like mogul skiing race contest. And this guy showed up in top hat and tails and was like a, a new school free skier, uh, ballet crazy. He did, he just crazy. I remember he like, Top hat and tails and threw a 360 into the moguls. And I had never seen anything like it. And that the whole attitude that that was, that was, you know, the action sports world that I got subsumed into months later. And costumes remain sort of a big part of it in a funny way as well. So I think that qualifies. Yeah. It's funny. I, I had a feeling it was it was a skateboard because I remember you referencing that in our previous conversations. And I, you know, I started with that in particular because of all the toys that my parents uh, would not buy me that were within their means, a skateboard was the number one thing on that list. My mom would always say, kids who skateboard break bones. And of course, now, you know, I'm 40 something. And I remember when I was staying at my parents' house and I brought home a skateboard, they're like, what the hell is that? And I was like, it's a skateboard. I'm 40 something. We're not going to have this conversation. My dad went to Costco, bought a helmet. And I was like, this is a helmet. Please wear it. Um, but you know, one thing that I wondered, as somebody who learned how to both surf and snowboard later in life, um, why is it that when you look particularly at kids on the mountain or, for that matter, water in any other action sport, um, they, one, like, seem to be able to recover from damn near anything in seconds. Like, I see these kids riding park who are, like, six years old and they just eat shit and they get up and keep going. Um but also in terms of the sort of brain development and neuroplasticity, like why is it that you can pick up a skill like surfing or for that matter, even learning a language? Um, why are those skills so much more rapidly acquired when you start young? So uh, they are, they aren't. And this is so in our country, the new book is about peak performance aging. And this is sort of one of those myths around aging and like many of the myths there's a big portion of it that's true and there's caveat at the end that changes everything yeah the thing you're talking about is essentially a, a, a this motor learning window for performance that is open uh in childhood and starts to shut down and is almost completely closed by around age 25 and that's the theory right and there is some truth to that in terms of brain development and, and, and whatever. What is actually more true though, and that window does shut. So they tell you don't become a ballerina after age 25. Don't try to learn gymnastics after age 25. Math gets harder. Foreign languages get harder. And, um, there's lots of different things going on in the brain 
that make this true. But what is the biggest impact is that when we are kids and when we are younger, we tend to take a uh, playful approach to learning. And there's a lot of benefit to a playful approach to learning and a lot of things it actually does in the brain and the body. And if you're really interested in peak performance aging, part of the formula that you need to know about is that you want to be engaged in sort of dynamic, deliberate play activities on a regular basis. Dynamic is a, is a fancy word for saying it hits all five aspects of uh, physicality. So strength, stamina, balance, agility, dex, uh, and, and flexibility. The old idea about uh, peak performance or about aging is that all those skills declined over time and there's nothing we could do about it. The new thinking is they're all user or lose it skills. Mm. And if we never stop training them, we get to hang out of them and even advance them far later in life, maybe it's all possible. And this is true with all the cognitive and, and uh, physical and mental skills we used to think decline over time. They're all use it or lose it skills. And this includes a lot of the difficult physical activity we we're talking about. What changes, one of the things that changes is how we learn. If we approach learning in the same way that we do when we're younger as older adults, you get much bigger results. There are a couple of other differences. So that's not a blanket statement. There's, there's more going on under the hood and we have, we'd have to really peel that back. But that's the, sort of the short answer to your question. I'll stop yeah. there and, and let you go. If, yeah, you go. well, you know, so the, the natural sort of follow-up to that is why don't we take that same playful approach to learning when we become adults? And I'll, I'll give you, you know, sort of an example um, we had Daniel Coyle here who wrote the talent code, and this is something I've mentioned before. So I learned to play the tuba in ninth grade. I don't know. I started in seventh grade by ninth grade. I missed all state by one chair by 10th grade. I was, you know, uh, ranked number one in California. Um, and I played probably for about nine years and, you know, I had no natural musical aptitude. And to this day, anytime I've tried to pick up a musical instrument, the process is so frustrating. There's a part of me that gets annoyed because I'm like, well, I got that good that fast. And I know, like, you know, and I think that's my own ego in the way. But um, Daniel Coyle said something to me that, that had always stayed with me about that. He had said he was like, you know, when we're thinking about something like musical instruments, he said, can you get so good that you impress the hell out of your friends and family? Yeah. He said, are you going to open for Guns N' Roses at their next concert? No. So what he's. Among the things that, that, that sort of he's talking about declines, uh, there, there are things we used to believe declined in time. And he's really an expert on myelination and uh, white matter and white matter in the brain declines over time. This is true. And as a result, processing speed slows where this really shows up most where everybody sees it in their life is in risk aversion. Risk aversion is actually directly tied to processing speed. And as processing speed slows, brain is a little bit behind what it used to be. So uh, we tend to get more risk adverse over time. Now, there are ways to fight against that. One, exercise fights against that. So as if we keep exercising, especially in a dynamic way that, that utilizes all the skills that declined over time, uh, that actually uh, can protect that. And the hippocampus, which does a lot of long-term memory, um, you can, shrinks over time similarly, and you can rebuild the hippocampus with the exercise. 
Um, so anything you lose to age can be rebuilt through exercise. There's also a bunch of new research that shows that brain decline seems to be tied to bone density. Our bones are the mineral factories of the brain, right? Where, where, where do you think a lot of the calcium the brain uses to make decisions is stored? And, uh, there's grown brain communication. This is sort of the cutting edge of, of neuroimmunology in, in a lot of those fields right now. But they're starting to realize that if you in, keep your bones, keep up bone density over time, brain slowing, uh, you can, you can, you can slow down brain slowing as well. So. Daniel's looking at some real stuff and he's talking about some real stuff and his science is pretty current, but uh, holes in those ideas have started showing up over the past five, six years. In fact, Adam Ghazali, who's at UCSF, he's a neuroscientist, a colleague of mine at the Flow Research Collective. We do a bunch of research with him. He's got a, a side company called Neuroscape that makes video games that are specifically uh, designed to treat all these different aspects of cognitive decline. Um, and they can rebuild pretty much a lot of, a lot of this stuff. So there's stuff that has to get rebuilt. There's stuff you have to do differently. And, uh, here's the biggest one. And this is, this is a slightly longer, I only pause here and there's a slightly longer answer to your question that involves flow and a whole bunch of other stuff. And I can go there if you want, but I'm going to yeah. pause here and, okay. and, and kick it back to you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, well, it's it's funny because I was somebody who learned how to surf after age 30. I started snowboarding consistently at 35. And I to this day, I remember when I was in my 20s and in college, I was the only one in my group of friends who couldn't even get down the damn mountain. Now, I don't think any of those friends would even bother snowboarding with me. Um, so I've seen that in my own life. But having moved away from the water and trying to learn how to surf again, I've actually resisted it because I'm like, damn it, this is going to be going through this whole learning curve again. And I got back in the water when I was in Brazil after two years and I was stunned at how difficult it was. I was just like, oh, my God. I'm like, right, So I will, let me tell you a couple things. Yeah. First of all. You're stunned at how difficult it is. If you would have stuck with it for two, three weeks, yeah, you're going to be stunned at how fast you actually progress. Okay, so yeah, you'll you'll it'll, it comes back really it comes back really fast. I've come back to surfing on three different occasions um, after very long breaks sometimes because I moved away from the ocean and whatnot. Um, so yeah, you can you can come back to it. You'll actually be be shocked at it. But one of the things you have this is actually the answer to the question. Part of the answer to the question. One of the things that happens. So one of the secrets to learning across the boards is when we are in flow, there's a huge increase in the amount of neurochemistry in our body. The more neurochemicals that show up during experience, better chance it'll move from short-term holding into long-term storage. So time and flow really impacts learning rates. One of the reasons kids learn so much faster, they're developmentally flow prone. So it's easier for kids to get into flow. This is another thing that happens. This is one of the reasons play matters so much in older adults. Play has a bunch of built-in flow triggers and it blocks some of the stuff that blocks flow and play amp massively amplifies learning. Where this gets tricky in adults is the following. Flow states, as you probably remember from our previous conversation, and I know you know, have triggers, right? Preconditions that lead to more flow. And all of the triggers work by driving attention into the present moment, right? Flow only only manifests when all our attention is the right here, right now. So all the triggers drive attention into the present moment. And um, one of the most important of those triggers is this idea of the challenge skills sweet spot, right? And this is the idea uh, that we pay the most attention to the task in hand when the challenge that task slightly exceeds our skill set. Now, normally, and especially when we're, we're younger, that gradient difference between challenge and skills is roughly about 5%, 4 to 5%. In 
Now, this is more metaphorical than actual. It changes based on your energy level, based on your expertise, based on a million factors. But it's roughly four to five percent, except over time, stress and exposure to stress over time impacts the body. We call this allostatic load. It's the impact of stress over time. It can be the impact of trauma over time, but it's really the impact of stress over time. And it impacts our physiology and our psychology, and it shrinks the challenge skills sweet spot. So what happens to a lot of adults is they remember the pace that they learned at when they were younger, and they go at the, the activity with that same kind of pacing and, and, and rate of progression in mind. And in fact, what you want to do is you want to like try to just go out and push like 1% harder than your skills, not 5%. And by going slower and at asking less of yourself, you're sort of respecting the fact that the allostatic load has increased over time. And it's in fact impacting the challenge skills sweet spot, which is shrunk from about 5% down to about 1%. So you want to take much smaller bites at, at, at what you're trying to learn, but you'll actually go, by going slower, you're gonna end up getting more flow and going much faster. But you, it's about holding yourself back in comparison to how you learn at younger dates. You said all this with musical instruments and yeah. tuba. You're taught, you, you spoke right into this uh, stuff. You, this is your experience. And um, this, so, you know, Nar Country is a book about me teaching myself how to, how to park ski using a bunch of these same ideas. Park skiing is supposed to be impossible for anybody over the age of 35, 40, 45. And I taught myself how to park yeah. ski in age 50. Right. You had 53. And then when, and, and it wasn't just me, right? We ran this experiment with me and my ski partner. And then we came back the following year and ran it through the Flow Research Collective with an actual study group where we had 17 older adults ages 29 to 68. We used the same protocol. And most of them were intermediate park ski, skiers or snowboarders with zero terrain park experience. And in four days on the mountain using this protocol, we got them incredibly, incredibly far. And if you know, you go to narcountry.com which is the website I built for the book, you can click on the peak performance aging experiment and see the video. We had a National Geographic photographer following us, or a videographer following us around. It was one way we measured performance was to do video and review analysis after the fact. But um, anybody can see what, you know, what I'm talking about. But we, this, was, this was the thing. It was about holding them back more than letting them go at the pace they wanted to go at. And that's one of the things that resulted in so much progression. Yeah, it's it's interesting, like when I hear you say that, because I think about how I practiced when I was learning the tuba. It was borderline obsessive to the point where I drove everybody in my family crazy because tubas are not pleasant to listen to. But I mean, I was taught, you know, we're talking three to four hours a day. And now I'm realizing, oh, yeah, well, that would make sense that I can't just sit around and play a guitar for four hours a day. Uh, and it wouldn't well, you can't probably... without love, right? Yeah. Like, you can't do it without flow. And the problem with guitar, with all this stuff is... And, the, and here's the thing over time, right? Like we, there are correlations between learning, right? There, there are patterns that exist in learning to play guitar and learning to surf and learning uh, algebra. There's like, there's patterns that overlap for sure, but there's also a lot of individual variation. And we start to think, oh, wow, I, I you know, I learned this really fast. I'm not learning this nearly as fast. Something's probably wrong with me. I maybe mean, I'm not built for this. And suddenly you're fucking with your mindset. And the minute you have a fixed mindset around this, it's getting harder. 
So there's a lot of stuff that sort of works against us, which is why this idea of trying to go one step at it, we call it one inch at a time, right? Mm-hmm. And that was my motto, go one inch at a time. When you're going for less, it, it actually tempers a lot of that in weird ways. Yeah. Well, let's get specifically into the book. Uh, I, you know, I think the, the moment I read that first chapter when you mentioned, you know, you decided to learn how to park ski at age 53, my first you sort of thought was, holy shit. Uh, because I've literally probably said to me friends a dozen times, I'm like, riding park on a snowboard looks amazing. I'm 40. If I break a bone, I'll be out for the season. It's never going to happen. But after reading your book, it made me rethink the whole concept. And I was like, okay, so, um, you know, one, like, what in the world made you want to, you know, park ski? I figured you're already a pretty much an expert level skier, right? Now, does that make a huge difference? No, I mean, it, I literally like, I mean, it, I mean, it helped with some of this stuff, but, um, I actually, it also meant that I brought a bunch of bad habits into the drain park with me. So it helped and it hurt. And I had, yeah, it was interesting. Like there's 11 different things that went into sort of why I, I chose park skiing. And, um, one of the, the most importantly is so this kind of not difficult, challenging quest later in life is really important, but it's really important to align whatever your quest is. You want a mission is my point. Like it's very important to have for successful aging, regular access to passion, purpose and flow really sort of matters, right? That's sort of that, 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 that's, that's part of what gets you into this door in a sense. Um, and then sustaining it over time really matters. And. I was, as an expert skier, my only entrance into flow was big mountain riding, more challenge, more risk, more danger. With park skiing, even though it seems ridiculous, what I was trying to do was I was trying to learn how to creatively interpret terrain features. Some of those terrain features were in the terrain park, but really I wanted to be able to use the entire mountain like a slope style course, if that makes sense to you. Mm-hmm. And the reason is this. Risk is a flow trigger, so it was novelty, and that's what I was getting as an expert skier. What I wanted was creativity. So creativity, when you link ideas together in a new way, you get pattern recognition, that works as a flow trigger. And it's a much safer flow trigger than risk. And if by learning how to park ski, I would learn a million different ways to creatively interpret the mountain and get into flow. So I was learning to move my body in new ways and use the terrain in new ways at all levels of terrain. And what I was doing was actually giving myself a million more entrances into flow over time than I actually had before as a skier. So this was actually about maximum flow is so crucial to peak performance aging. In fact, at the, uh, at the Flow Research Collective, right, where we train people on all this stuff, we've bundled our standard zero to dangers, our regular flow training with enter to the NAR, the peak performance aging training, because you, you almost want to come in with the flow stuff already down into the peak performance aging stuff. Um, mm-hmm. It's really useful because flow is so fundamental for peak performance aging. And I could talk, there's a million different reasons and we could talk about what those are, but I'll, I'll I'm again, I'm going to pause here. So I don't yeah. talk here. Yeah. Well, you, you talked about the park having an element of creativity, not you know, more than having an element of risk. And one of the things that you actually say in the book um, is that basically we, you say, you know, Stanford neuroscientist Andrew Huberman said that you can fight fear with peripheral vision. 
because I, I think that like when I look at the park, uh, you know, I see opportunities to be creative, but like the whole thought of, you know, eating shit scares me to death. Okay. Uh, yes. Well, because what, I feel like I'm going to break the bone. So in two different directions. Me, like I said, I, I kind of wrote off the idea of ever being somebody who could ride park on a snowboard until I read this book, which made me start to think maybe I can actually do jumps and all the crazy shit that I see. Okay. So let me tell you what we did. And then I'll talk about Andrew Huberman in a second. Uh, hey, Stephen, I different things. They're slightly different, though they're, they, they're related in, in a cool, important way. So first of all, here's how, what we did with park riding. We didn't try to teach people to do tricks. We started, we broke parks, skiing and snowboarding into eight foundational movements. Hockey stop, I mean, excuse me, a snow grind, uh, a, uh, a jump, crouch, a splash, a 180 could be done on the surface of the flow. So you could do a sliding spin or a surface swap 180, right? A 360. Um, and there's one motion I've, I've forgotten that'll come back in half a second. And our goal was to take, to teach people two new ways to move their body and practice their body. And to, the goal was start with an established motor pattern. So that you do a hundred percent of the time with no conscious interference and zero fear. And here's the thing. Every skier and snowboarder knows how to hockey stop. If you're at the intermediate level, you can hockey stop. If I raise the angle of the terrain and you try to hockey stop on a tilted surface, um, that's a grind. So I knew everybody in our study group, everybody who could at least be an intermediate had something they could do 100% of the time hockey stop because that's basically a beginner thing that you all learn. This is how you stop on the mountain. And we could just lift you up a little bit and teach you how to grind. And then if we teach you, you know, how to shift your weight when you do it, we can teach you how to sweat, how to, how to slash. So those were, I knew every, in every skill set and everybody basically knows how to crouch and even jump a little bit. And so we built on that. And the idea was go into the terrain park and use, you don't have to use the jump as a jump. You can use the mound of snow and come in and snow grind along the edge of it, which is a legitimate park trick that people do all the time. But it's allowing you to use this big ass jump feature in a really unique way that's going to drive dopamine into your system. So that dopamine acts as a flow trigger. Well, once you're in flow, performance goes to the roof, and then you might want to start working on tricks. That's the first thing we did. Here's the second thing we did. We played games of follow the leader. The idea was... We got in big, long lines. We tried to, based on basically how fast you felt like going down the hill. The fastest people were at the front of the line, right? All the way back to the, the and it wasn't like who's faster, how fast did you want to go on this run, right? So it switched all the time. And it was do what the person in front of you is doing, or if you don't have the trick, do something mellower that's within your skill set. And the idea here is when you watch somebody else perform a motion, your mirror neurons run the same motor program automatically and you actually get a signal. You'll get a little squirt of dopamine pleasure if you have the trick and you'll get a little squirt of norepinephrine if you don't. So if you have the trick, you do the trick. If you don't, you do a mellower version that is within your skill set, only pushing like 1%. And this is what we did. And this is how we did it. And you get incredibly far using these techniques. So that's what we did. What you mentioned about Andrew, you were in peripheral vision is what we would do ahead of time. And here's why. 
that challenge skills sweet spot is very much tuned to how much fear is in your system. So regulating your nervous system is really important for these kind of harder challenges. On a daily basis, you can use things like a gratitude practice or a mindfulness practice or regular exercise. Those are great ways to regulate your nervous system. But in scarier situations, you need stuff that's going to work immediately. Sometimes breath work will do it. Sometimes reframing will do it. Sometimes you need a more physiological-based intervention. So it turns out when we are looking at the world through very intensely focused vision, right, staring at the thing in front of us with full concentration, that's what the eyes do during fight or flight. That's what we do when we're really scared. When you're looking, and that's, that produces a reaction in the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight side of it. When we look at the world through peripheral vision, corners of our eyes, this actually, and this is Andrew Yibman's work at Stanford, this actually calms us down. It activates the parasympathetic system. It's literally your brain going, oh, you're looking at things out of the corner of your eyes. You're checking out the scenery. All must be chill. Let's calm down because it's expensive to produce fear. Like the neurochemicals underneath fear take energy to produce and, and burn calories. And the brain is an efficiency machine. So if it can protect, you know, those calories, it will. Um, and, uh, so you want to, uh, on a, if you're going into a challenging situation and we used to do this, like on our way to ski over to the train park, I would always try to look out of the corners of my eyes as much as possible. So I'm calming my body down. So when I pull into the train park, I'm as calm as possible because I'm about to do something scary and I want to be as calm as possible to stay in that challenge skills sweet spot. Yeah. So when you you say like a milder version of the trick, so just for clarity's sake, let's say that I wanted to go and attempt a, a jump or something like that, or one of those things that looks like a jump. So rather than doing the jump, I would just go up the ramp and go down it so like I normally would. One episode, for one, I would start, you, you have to understand how your body learns. So this is about pattern recognition and embodied cognition and affordances and a bunch of whiz-bang science. But the point is, you have to learn the shape of the features in the terrain park before your body starts to even get vaguely comfortable. So I would tell you to start by skiing up and then down the jump very slowly. So your body actually gets a feel of this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to come down. This is what it looks like to ride over that knuckle. I would like give yourself five or six just tours through the terrain park where like the first couple of things you're doing nothing. Then you've got the on a jump, right? You've got the rounded mound of snow. That's the knuckle that the jump sits upon. And then you've got the big jump. Start by jumping the knuckle, just like coming up the rise of the knuckle and popping and getting like an inch over the knuckle. We had one of the uh, people I studied subjects was a woman. She was 66 years old. She'd never jumped off anything. And we started her this way. And by the end of camp on the last day, she floated a 40 foot knuckle. I've never seen anything like that. We, I literally, I was like down in the park. I was just sort of watching people and I had told my partners, I was like, they're getting really excited. There's a lot of progress today. Keep people dialed back. Make sure they're staying at 1% and they're not pushing. And the next thing I know, this woman rose into a, a knuckle of a, a green, like a medium to large size park jump and jumps the entire knuckle just like she's only a foot off the ground right air wise she's only like a, a foot above it but she took off at the front of the knuckle and landed on the down slope and the entire flat part across the top she floated across she had never done anything like that in her life she was so ecstatic 
I can only imagine. Well, how would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. 
So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Speaking of which, you say that it appeared that our NAR country approach was addictive once people realized there was an accessible entrance point to park skiing, the sliding spin 360. Their fear was replaced by curiosity and dopamine did the rest. The neurochemical amped up pattern recognition, fast twitch muscle response and willingness to take risks. The result, someone who'd never done a sliding spin 360 nail one in their first try. And then you go on to say that most of us arrive in our 50s feeling the cage has gotten smaller. What's actually shrunk is our mindset. We're in a prison of our own making. Once we discover we can keep on learning later in life, that mindset shifts and the cage vanishes. And I think the other thing that struck me most was what you say uh, about uh, speed in terms of aging, Mm. that people tend to think that slowing down is the a good thing and yeah. you actually say it's safer to go fast so explain that to me yeah so uh people don't realize this but the gear in action sports across the boards pretty much everything unless you're buying beginner gear is made for experts experts ski mountain bike snowboard water ski wakeboard take your pick at much faster speeds. And so the equipment is designed to work at speed. If you're riding a mountain bike at two miles an hour along a very bumpy trail, you're going to get sucked into every rock and you're going to get bounced around. It's going to be like you're on a freaking Bronco. If you're going 15 miles an hour, you skip over the surface of the rocks. You never dive into those holes. And so it's a much smoother, safer ride. And because the bike is designed to work at speed, you have full use of the suspension, which allows you to be very agile. So it's a lot safer. Um, it just takes a little while to get to those speeds. The same thing is true with skis. Most skis are made to work above 25 miles an hour, 20 miles an hour. You don't know that because most people don't get, don't ever learn how to ski that thing. But when you get to that speed, Energy input goes way down. Performance goes way up. You could be at, at, at 25 miles an hour on skis. All you have to do is turn your ankles a little bit to initiate a very hard carve. But if you're going like three or four miles an hour, you see people leaning all the way over left, trying to get their edges into the terrain, riding their total or snowboard. They're totally off balance. It's because they're not used. The, the, the board doesn't have, can't, it can't do what it's designed to do at two miles an hour. Hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, well, so one thing that you pointed out in the book was uh, what you say, the neuro- neurobiological changes unlock three types of thinking that are mostly inaccessible before our 50s. Yes. More importantly, all three types of thinking continue to improve with age as long as we continue to cultivate creativity. And you talk about relativistic thinking, non-dualistic thinking, and systematic thinking. So explain how those all work together in terms of peak performance. Yeah, this is so cool. This is so cool. So the the old idea, traditional idea of aging, one a part of it is you can, the old dog can't learn new tricks. And it turns out that is totally wrong. It turns out old dogs are actually better at learning a whole slew of tricks than new dog than young dogs, new dogs, whatever. I'm crushing this metaphor. <laughs> um, but and here's why. So as we enter our late forties, our fifties, uh, there's certain genetic genes that turn on only through experience. The two halves of the 
brains start working together like never before. Normally they're in opposition, but they come together in our 50s and they this increases into our 80s. And finally, uh, we gain access. The brain starts to utilize underutilized resources and real estate, right? Colonizes new territory. And the result is these three kinds of intelligences that you talked about. So let's talk about what comes online. And, and then there's a whole bunch of stuff downstream from it that's amazing. So relativistic thinking is we learn that there's no such thing as black and white. Everything is gray and everything is shades of gray. And if you really want to be paying attention, everything is really subtle changes in shades of gray, right? That's really important. Non-dualistic thinking, we learn that our perspective is only one perspective. We learn multi-perspectival thinking. I can now see this thing from full circle, a bunch of different perspectives. Mine's only one. I don't, it's not black or white, all that stuff. Finally, uh, big picture thinking, right? We learn to think at a systems level like never before. These three levels of intelligence unlock whole new levels of abstract reasoning and problem solving and decision making. Then we get whole new levels of creativity, including divergent thinking, which you know is the hardest aspect of creativity to train. We also gain a whole bunch of empathy, which is really key. And finally, uh, we gain a lot uh, of wisdom. And wisdom is a is a very specific neurobiological trait. It's, you know, it's essentially, you know, what we think of as emotional intelligence or emotional intelligence over time. That's that's often wisdom. But it uh, it's really, really important. And these are key skills that make learning later in life so much easier. Um, and it's one of the reasons we saw as much progress as we saw in our older adult subjects was because of this. And and fully, if you want to unlock these superpowers, there's a bunch of things you have to do along the way, but in your 50s, you need to think creatively. You nailed it, right? And creative activities, whether it's writing or cooking or coding or just like how you get dressed in the morning or drive to work or any anytime you're forcing the brain to think creatively, it's that that activity and what it does in the brain is actually what starts to unlock these developmental intelligences. So in psychology, we talk a lot about moderators, if-then conditions. And in adult development, you see a lot of these moderators. And in our 50s, creativity is a moderator to quality of life afterwards for these reasons. Hmm. Well, there's one other thing that struck me here. And uh, you say for the past 18 months, while well, I skied 88 days, I also launched a book, edited a second, wrote a third and almost finished writing a fourth. Additionally, I helped steer the flow research collective through a pandemic, gave over 200 speeches and interviews, led half a dozen research initiatives and managed to stay happily married throughout. Also, my dogs still like me. All this matters for one big reason. Being busy is not an excuse. And then you go on to say that too often the siren song of adult responsibility is where our dreams go to die. We have an alphabet's worth of excuses. I can't do X because I'm already doing Y and Z. Um, talk to me about that because it, it got me thinking about you know, sort of how much time I'm not spending on the mountain when I read that, even though I have my season pass. And I'm just like, OK, yeah, like I'm making excuses here. I know I could easily go and spend a, a day on the mountain. I could probably do two or three days a week if I wanted to. So. There's a bunch here. And uh, it starts with this. Peak performance aging is incredibly possible for all of us. 
but there's a lot to do. There's stuff you got to do. And what the research shows is once you reach your 50s, if you're not moving forward, you're going backwards. So if you're not training the skills you need to be training, they're actually declining, right? So it becomes much more imperative uh, later in life. My big point is that what they, there were a number of big points. One is that this is a standard flow thing. So flow massively amplifies performance, as we know, right? McKinsey did that 10-year study of top executives in flow, um, and they found that top executives in flow are 500% more productive than out of flow. That's a huge boost in productivity. One of the reasons I was capable of doing so much while spending so much time learning how to park ski was park skiing kept dropping me into flow. And flow the heightened productivity and the heightened creativity that shows up in the state will outlast the state by a day, maybe two. So it bled into all the other stuff I was doing, first and foremost. So getting more flow on the mountain allowed me to get a ton more flow at work. Second of all, um, if you don't, that's the thing about peak performance aging and, and, and these NAR-style missions that I'm emphasizing. Like, if you don't do it now, when are you going to do it? only gets harder. If you want to rock till you drop, what the science shows is we want to regularly engage in challenging social and creative activities that demand dynamic, deliberate play and take place in novel outdoor environments. That's peak performance aging in a single sentence. And the question, it's just a question of like, when do you start, right? And, um, and how far do you want to go? So uh, to me, I, and, the, and, the, and the last thing I want to say about your, your comment is the oh I've got a season in the past but I want to don't want to go I keep making excuses all this stuff is part of the what I call the mindset of old mm-hmm. and the mindset of old starts showing up in our late twenties for a bunch of biological reasons but it's deadly deadly and what I mean by that is we know from copious amounts of studies like fifty years worth of studies that the link between mindset and peak performance aging is unbelievably tight if you have a positive mindset towards aging I think. My best years are ahead of me. And I think, you know, my life is filled with wonderful possibility. The result is an extra seven and a half years of healthy longevity. If you have a negative mindset towards aging, there's there's a health penalty as well. So every time you make excuses for yourself and you don't do these things, you're feeding into that unhealthy mindset towards aging. You're feeding feeding a very dangerous beast. Yeah. Well, I mean, fact, I mean, Sorry, let, me put one, let me take it one step further because this is crazy, but worth saying. So when we are subjected to negative mindsets around aging, meaning when we are subject to stereotypes around aging, meaning when somebody says, oh, you're too old for that shit, or when the voice in your head says you're too old for that shit, we know from work done by Becca Levy at Yale, very, very, really rigorous, great work that being exposed to negative mindsets around aging, meaning exposed to bad stereotypes around aging, by the time you're 60 years old, if you've grown up around them and, and, and gone into adulthood with these ideas, you will have exhibit 30% greater memory decline than people who are not subject to negative mindsets around aging. Wow. Yeah, it, well, it, it makes sense as to why when I was surfing so regularly, writing just happened so easily because the flow just carried over consistently. Yeah, it carries over. Yeah, yeah it totally carries over. It's the other, you know, the other thing I think that nobody really talks about, but I think this is really important when you are in, when you're doing these kind of challenging physical activities and, and it doesn't have to be, we, I mean, we're, we're all up in action sports, but you can <laughs> yeah. like learning salsa dancing. 
You know what I mean? Or you could be learning tennis for that matter and still get a lot of these same carryovers um, because they're dynamic activities and they do a lot of the, the work that you need doing. But physical challenge, because we're physically embodied creatures, always sort of has priority in the brain in terms of survival. And when we have, when we like reach and exceed physical goals, it does a number of things for us. But one thing it does is it really calms our nervous system down so like what happens is if you're out surfing, right? And you, uh, let's say you're comfortable in four foot surf and a five foot wave comes in and, and, and you take it, right? You push yourself a little bit and take it and you surf it and you're fine. That extra bit of confidence uh, that shows up in, in surfing translates when you run into like writing and you run into a writing challenge, mm-hmm. you actually have more confidence because a writing problem doesn't seem nearly as scary as a five-foot wave, yep. right? Totally. Even though we both know a five-foot wave isn't going to really do much damage and a writing problem could threaten your career and they're totally... <laughs> it's not true, right? Yeah. It's an illusion, not true. And yet the brain prioritizes the physical stuff. So what ends up happening is like work stuff, which is actually often a lot more survival-based, gets, we get less reactive. And as a result, you know this, when we're calmer, you get amplified learning, amplified creativity, amplified performance, better access to flow. All the stuff you need comes from, from that calm. So there's a lot of different benefits sort of that, that overlay here. Um, yeah, I'll so stop there. Basically, you're making me think like I'm, I'm working on this new book called The Artificially Intelligent Creative, which is all about AI um, and creativity. And again, like I've gotten a significant amount done way faster than I ever thought I could, but I've been stuck lately. So I'm thinking after hearing you, it's like, Oh, you know oh, what? Dude, go, go, yeah, go. I mean, by the way, I would go, please go to the mountains. Yeah. Go, go snowboarding, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, where are you? You're in, I'm in, so- I'm in SoCal at the moment. So big bear is my, uh, closest big mountain. Bear. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you'll find You'll start finding some crossover, especially if you go in open with like, I'm going to learn. I'm just going to, you know what I mean? That's sort of like totally the kind of the kind of thing where you're not judging yourself. You're not self-conscious, you know, yeah. really set yourself up well for flow. And I think you'll start to see bleed over. Yeah. I mean, you're making me think you're I should like, just you're go. You're in Southern California with all the snow they've been getting. You could yeah. go. You could get lost. <laughs> yeah, man. No, you're making me think I should just go rent a cabin for three days and stay up there um, rather than drive back and forth. So, you know, I, I think that's a good idea. Yeah. I advise that. Well, OK. So uh, one thing you did write about in the book was getting hurt. Um, talk to me about that and sort of recovery and how you deal with yeah, that. So I think there's 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 like three or, three or four things worth going, worth talking about here. The first is the fact of the matter. Older adults take longer to heal than younger adults. That fact, that's fact, period. So you really, you don't want to get hurt if you can avoid it, right? That's just primary. But so hot one, that's why I always tell people, don't just jump into these things, right? There's a, I took the book, I took a year to train for park skiing before I went in full time, right? Like I literally took a year, um, March to March before I was full time in the train bar, um, to do this. I also did all the smart things that people don't do because they get impatient on the front end. Good movement professionals will watch you walk and say, oh, you broke your ankle when you were 12 and you're overcompensating by doing this, this, and this, and let's fix these these smaller muscles that you're probably not paying attention to. You want to do stuff like that so you don't get hurt, right? 
Um, you also want to go slower inside of it. You want to have a very, very rigorous recovery protocol, right? TV and a beer isn't going to get it done. You sauna, stretching, restorative yoga, long walks, long walks in nature, Epsom salt baths, Theraguns are your friend, body work is your friend, cold plunge is your friend. All these things you want to put into place. You want deep delta wave sleep in between sessions. One, you won't learn anything without it. So if you're trying to onboard new motor skills and you're not getting seven, eight hours of sleep a night, why are you bothering? Because you literally can't transfer the skills from short-term holding into long-term storage. So like all that stuff becomes really, really, really important. That's sort of just sort of maintenance over time. Um, and then the other two things that are worth pointing out, one, I'm gonna, the one is the hard ass and one is the happy answer. The hard ass answer is, while getting hurt is serious, I've been hurt a great deal. Um, we're not as fragile as we think we are, one. Um, two, um, getting hurt is often, often, not always, often, not the big deal we think it is. Um, I, and this is coming from a guy who's broken 85 bones, right? Like I, I've been hurt a lot. I know what being hurt is. Um, and I know what it takes to recover from different things. And, you know, you, that it's not as crazy as, as most people make it out to. The other flip side is that regenerative medicine has gotten pretty good. I've been writing about studying, researching, running experiments in regenerative medicine for 20 years. And I will tell you that 20, 25 years ago when it started, it was a joke. It was, it wasn't real. They couldn't do much. And it wasn't real until probably around 2015 or so. But in the past 10 years, starting to get real. And when it comes to like muscles, ligaments, tendons, and now the low end bones, we're getting really good. Stem cells, exosomes, placental matrix, peptides, plasma, uh, platelet plasma, all these are very good tools that we didn't have five or six years ago. Um, some of them are cheaper than others. Um, and that, and, and cost is definitely a factor here, right? Like this stuff, a lot of this stuff is still, uh, designer medicine and not yet widely covered by insurance. Some is starting to be covered by insurance, but the tools are getting better and better and better and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper which is, you know, another factor. And the idea that young, uh, young, old people, older adults take longer to heal than younger adults is true only until we take control of stem cells. And mo if, you're fi if you're tracking that research, five to seven years looks to, appears to be the timeline for that. So even that we seem to be circling in on in, in kind of cool ways. Yeah. Now, I may be a little exuberant in that timeline. I'm trying to, I try to be as cautious as possible when it comes to regenerative medicine. I always tell people when it comes to like the experimental stuff, the flow stuff, I got firsthand experience. I'm, 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 I do research. I, you know what I mean? We do all that work at the Flow Research Collective. When it comes to, you know, what I'm now doing, which is giving healthcare advice. Remember, you're getting healthcare advice from a guy whose degrees are in poetry and, and, and fiction writing. <laughs> like you're not taking advice from a doctor. You're taking advice from a poet. So like, Big grain of salt when I give healthcare advice because I'm just giving it to you from my own experience and what I've learned covering it as, you know, as a writer. I don't think I'm an expert there. I'm an expert when it comes to flow and flow science. But like when you cross that line into healthcare and general 
you know, this is not my expertise. This is what, what, what I've been running experiments. I've learned a lot, but I, I always caution people on that one. Yeah. You know, I, this is just a question out of morbid curiosity uh, that I meant to ask you earlier in our conversation. You're talking about children and how they easily get into flow. Uh, I have a, a five-month-old nephew, and it's just been fascinating to watch his motor skill development. Uh, you know, like these very small things, you know, we were, he, he has this like little jungle gym and I was uh, at my, my sister's house last week and I put his curious George monkey on top of the jungle gym just to see what he would do. And I was like, Hey buddy, can you help curious George get down? And you know, the jungle gym has like other toys attached to it. So this kid literally looked at it for a few minutes, yanked the little toy, pulled it down and just pulled curious George off. So like what is happening in terms of flow at that age? So there's, Two things going on at that age. One, so flow states have precursors, right? Think, there are things that happen in the brain that produce more flow. There's changes in brain waves. When we move into flow, our brain waves are much closer to the alpha theta borderline. Kids normally, naturally, developmentally are prone to alpha. So they have an easier time getting into alpha state that, than adults. And Flow is right on that borderline. So that's part of it. Their prefrontal cortex is not fully developed. And the ability to turn off parts of your prefrontal cortex is critical for flow. So these kinds of things make kids developmentally flow prone um, as a result. The other thing you're looking at, this is sort of about embodied cognition. You gave a really great example. The old eye, so we talk about if in traditional psychology or neuroscience, you'll hear people talk about the action percept or the perception action cycle. I perceive the world and then I act upon my perceptions. And it turns out that's exactly backwards. We don't perceive the world and then act on our perceptions. We use our actions to test our perceptions. It's the action perception cycle. And because brains are built for movement, that's what brains are designed for. And so all movement, and this could be eye movement as well, are about sort of testing hypotheses. If I do this, what happens? If I do this, what happens? If you're talking about your nephew got in the jungle gym and surveyed and looked around and then solved the problem for you by reaching up and, and yet that's what they're doing. They're testing reality with movement. Hmm. Um, and you, th there's really crazy experiments on, on kids, babies, where they take babies, they put them in a cradle, they put a mobile above them, and the, the kids will sort of maybe interact with the mobile a little bit, it's randomly, whatever, they're kicking there, whatever, and then they tie one of the kids' legs with a string to the mobile, and the infants, once they realize they can affect change in the mobile by kicking their leg, yeah. they go crazy. And they only go crazy with the leg that's attached to the mobile. So they learn, they want to get this action because they're trying to learn, this is how kids learn. They test the world through movement, movement, physical movement, even uh, certain kinds of conscious thoughts qualify as movement under the, if you're talking, this is embodied cognition and, and a bunch of stuff downstream from that. So the way they think about the brain, uh, sometimes movement is, is internal as well. Unconscious thoughts don't really, aren't really movement, but conscious thoughts can count as movement sometimes. Doesn't matter. But my point is, this is how we, this is actually how we learn. So one of the other things that happens, one of the reasons we can pry open this motor learning window and reopen it in older adults is by making, by having, teaching them new movements and letting them investigate the world with movement first. This feeds directly into how we learn. In fact, 
just uh, say you want to learn a foreign language. If you couple the words with gestures, right? I'm trying to learn, you know, whatever it is. And, and, and when you're saying the word to yourself and you coupled the, the meaning with a gesture, you'll learn it much faster. In fact, it, in the inverse, when they see little kids around, around the edge of your nephew at, and, and above, and above um, if he points to, a, to an object and, and his mother names the object, right? Like points, what is that? That is a painting or what, you know, take your pick. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a pterodactyl. Within two months of pairing the sound of the word with the gesture, the kid will learn the, the word. Wow. It just becomes part of their vocabulary if they don't. So there's now studies in, turns out, this is wild, it turns out kids who have parents who gesture more learn faster because we think first in gesture, gestures are proto words. So we think first in gesture and then in language. That's how it evolves. And so there's something in, in poor communities, uh, parents tend to gesture more. This is across the board. It doesn't matter what nationality you're in. Um, in lower income communities, they have what's known as gesture poverty and produces lower levels of uh, intelligence um, as a result of this whole feedback. So there's now all these interventions in low-income communities where they're going in and they're teaching the parents to gesture more. Wow. Um, and this massively has an impact on how children learn. Talk about wild mind-body connections that you don't yeah. think about, right? Yeah, all this stuff comes. I mean, this is stuff that I use to help train older adults, right? But come, all a lot of the research in body cognition and this sort of stuff, it came out of questions like how do infants learn? Mm-hmm. actually going on when infants learn. Yeah. And that was that was where a lot of this early research started coming from. Well, when you mentioned tying the mobile, like one of the things that we would do with my nephew and um, one of my sister's colleagues told her, it's like, oh, buy a helium balloon and tie it to his feet. It'll be like hours of entertainment. And is exactly yeah, it's act- what you're act- talking yeah, about. Act- it was just good. fascinating. Like we called it playing soccer. You know, you'd tie it loosely and every time the balloon would go off, we'd be like, goal. <laughs> but that's really cool. Yeah. Um, well, like as always, you and I could talk for hours and hours about all of this stuff. I mean, you're a wealth of knowledge. Uh, you know, like I said, this book was kind of different than some of the other books, but, uh, also, you know, filled with really interesting insights. And like I said, made me start to rethink the idea of writing park. Um, but in the interest of time, I want to finish with my final question, uh, which, you know, I've asked you before, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? unmistakable that's interesting i always to me the answer is style and but i gotta let me define what i mean by style style and this is to me the root of all creativity style is conscious a conscious choice somebody's made a choice so i've got a good friend who works at a big software company and a very he's a vice president Every day he goes to work in a button down khakis, right? Doesn't look like a very stylish choice, but he's got great style. Why? Because he knows that he's a much more effective manager if he blends in than if he stands out in his environment, right? He dresses how he dresses out of work a very different way. At work, he wants to blend in. He's making a style choice, making a creative choice, um, that's what I, I think what makes somebody unmistakable is when you see that kind of intentionality and that kind of 
choice over time in a lot of things. That's what I think makes somebody on mistake is, is, is their creativity is bled out of their primary art form into everything they do. And it's visible in, in, in the choices they make. Amazing. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and uh, share your story, your wisdom and insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about the new book and all the work that you've been up to since you were last here? Yeah, so uh, the new book, narcountry.com, also available Amazon or anywhere you buy books, support your local independent bookstores. Um, if you're interested in training flow, which is foundational for peak performance aging um, or training peak performance aging for that matter, uh, the best URL, um, and I'm pardon the cheesy URL here, but it's easy to remember, so we're going with it, is getmoreflow.com. <laughs> so at the Flurry Collective, if you want to train with us at any level or you want to learn more about our trainings, just go to getmoreflow.com. You can sign up for like a free hour-long coaching call. And, and all we'll do is get on the phone with you and talk to you about, about flow and flow training and, and peak performance aging and all the stuff we're doing. Um, and it's one-stop shopping. And, I, and people love that call. They learn a frick ton. Um, and uh, it's, it's super fun. Um, nice. Folks. Well, so I may have to sign up for one um, myself. <laughs> Getmoreflow.com will get get you there. And uh Nar Country is the book. If you want to flow Gina or Flow Research Collective is 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 the company in general, and stephencollar.com is me. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. 
This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.